0: This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm
2: Lucia Rahili.
1: And I'm Roberta
3: Fissaro.
2: Major multinational corporations disproportionately drive flows, especially the ones associated with knowledge, and therefore they're going to be uh, necessarily in the center of the managing for their own resilience, but also, in a collective sense, for the resilience of the world.
1: That's McKinsey's senior partner and director of the McKinsey Global Institute, Olivia White. She joins me to talk about how the world remains interconnected through the global flows of goods, labor, and knowledge.
3: After, AB InBev has thrived despite economic turmoil because of its smart financial decisions. You'll hear all about them in an excerpt from our December McKinsey Live series, when we spoke with its CFO, Fernando Tenenbaum.
1: Olivia, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
1: Pundits and other public figures have been wrongly predicting the demise of globalization for what seems like years now. And... As we enter this sort of wake of COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, all these other disruptions, many are once again at it, sounding the death knell. So let's start with that fundamental question. What does this new MGI research tell us about the fate of globalization? Is it really in
2: retreat? The flows of goods, so start there, the real tangible stuff, have leveled off, yes, after a period of nearly 20 plus years, growing at twice the rate of GDP. But they kept pace with GDP and even rose a little bit, surprisingly, particularly even in the past couple of years. Since GDP has been growing, that means that the actual ties um, have gotten stronger. But the real sort of striking finding in everything that we've seen is that the flows of ideas in the form of IP, of data, And even of things like uh, services or international student flows, flows representing knowledge and know-how, those have accelerated and are now growing faster than the flow of goods.
1: Goods are a smaller share then of the total flows, a smaller share of economic output than in the past. Could it actually be a sign of progress?
2: The fact that goods are growing less quickly than others, yeah, show a whole lot about the way that our economy overall is shifting, what's most important to the way that the economy functions. It comes on the back of a long history of a variety of different factors influencing growth and just shifts even in the way that patterns work. But sure, partially what's happening is that a variety of different countries are producing more domestically, first and foremost, China. And that has been driving a lot of the slowdown. If you take the longitudinal view over the past 10 years versus what came before it.
1: In the research, we talk about no region being self-sufficient. How interdependent would you say that we are at this stage?
2: So the top line, give you a number, is that every region in the world, let's talk regions for a moment, depends on another significant region for at least 25% of one of the flows that matters most to it. So in general, regions that are manufacturing regions, so that means Europe or Europe 30, Asia Pacific, China, if we look at it on its own, because it's such a large economy, all of those places, major manufacturing regions, and they depend very strongly on the rest of the world for resources. So food to some degree, but really energy and minerals of various different sorts. I'll give you a few examples. So start with China, China imports, over 25% of its minerals, and it goes to places as far flung as, well, start with Australia, that's fairly close, but also Brazil, from Chile, from South Africa. If you look at Asia Pacific, really much the same thing. And both of those regions import energy, particularly in the form of oil from the Middle East, and also from Russia. Europe, different example, because it's really sort of emblematic of these forms of dependency. In energy, it was dependent on Russia for over 50% of its energy. Now, that's drastically changed, but highly, highly dependent. Go to some other regions in the world. If you look at places that are resource-rich, so, yes, the Middle East, also uh, sub-Saharan Africa, also Latin America, those are places that are very highly dependent on the rest of the world for their manufactured goods. And there are a lot of people that live in those places. So we're talking well over half of the world's population. To give you an example, they import well over 50% of their electronics, import similar amounts of their pharmaceuticals. So highly, highly dependent on other parts of the world for things that are really quite critical to development and for modern life. North America and the U.S., somewhat of a different story. We don't have any single spot of quite as great a dependency, at least at the broad category level, but we import close on to 25% of what we use in net value terms across the spectrum, both of resources and of manufactured goods. And all of this doesn't yet speak of data and IP, where, just to give you an example, U.S. and to some degree Europe are fairly significant producers, i.e. exporters. country like China, very large consumer or importer of IP.
1: What about labor? How interdependent are we in terms of the global workforce?
2: Yeah, this is really quite striking. So what we did is we said, how many people, how many workers in regions outside of North America serve North American demand? And we asked the same question for Europe. And it turns out that 60 million people in regions outside North America serve North American demand. And in Europe, the corresponding number is 50 million. These are numbers that are very, very substantial versus the working population in either of those countries. So when you talk about how much of what we, or for example, people in Europe are consuming could be produced onshore by onshore labor, not remotely those sorts of numbers, at least given the means of production or the way that services are delivered today and the role that people play in that today.
1: Yeah, really interesting context given the talent gap. Let's turn here to some of the categories of flow that have actually increased in recent years. What's driving
2: growth in global
1: flows now that the trade in goods has stabilized?
2: So the answer we give to this is flows linked to knowledge and, and know-how. Let me start with the ones specifically so linked. So closest to the most traditional, Services. Historically, services have sort of plotted along with increased, over time, increased global connection, but growing more slowly than manufactured goods, more slowly than resources. That's flipped over the past 10 years. And services among those more traditional trade flows have been growing fastest, so at about 6% a year versus resources, which have slowed to just a couple percent. That's one thing. When I say services, I'm thinking things like professional services of various sorts, engineering services, anything that involves um, you will know how, but also somebody that's that's providing, say, call center support, is you can think of in that category. Growing even faster, the flows of IP. Now, IP is tricky, right? Because exactly how do you account for it, et cetera, is a very tricky thing to do, but it roughly looks at flows of the fun stuff. So this is, I think in the report, we talk about squid games, but you, you think about movies, you think about Netflix, you think about music, all of those things, the sorts of cultural elements that we consume, but also really importantly flows of patents and ideas uh, and the way that companies will use um, ideas developed in one country or know how developed in one country to help what they do broadly across the world. And then moving from that, those have been growing at roughly six percent per year as well. Move from that to data. So data flows are the actual flows of the packets, right? So no longer the intellectual property associated with the music or the movie, but the actual flow of the packets of data or we're both in the US right now, but if if you were in a different country, it would be the flows between us and Zoom, et cetera. Or the flows linked to our ever-expanding use of cloud with a bunch of things that one can say about data localization. So not everything's going across borders. And those have been going very, very fast. Final thing, and I find this actually quite interesting, flows of international students have also been rising. That was mightily interrupted by the pandemic for reasons that I don't need to belabor. They seem to be rebounding. I think it's a real question around what degree those will sort of jump back up on their accelerated growth trajectory. So you
1: mentioned the flow of international students dropping off during COVID for the obvious reasons. Did other flows generally drop off during the pandemic, or were there examples of flows that were particularly resilient throughout that period?
2: So start with resources and manufactured goods. Those flows both jumped reasonably significantly in 2020 and 2021 both to levels of about 6% per year, right, if you look at an annualized basis, which is more like what they'd been doing 20 years ago. Now, to some degree, what was happening is that cross-border flows were stepping in to replace interrupted domestic production. So flows from Asia coming in, for example, to the U.S. or to Europe. We've seen some flows go in reverse directions. And then, as I said, a bunch of, of interruption in domestic production. So quite surprising. The other, the other flow I'll add to those that jumped quite a lot was flows of capital, where people needed to shift the way that they were financing themselves. Um, multinationals needed to shift the way they were financing themselves, and some were moving liquidity to different parts of the world under under times of financial stress. So those jumped. You now some of this is is data and accounting, but those jumped to levels in the tens of digits growth from what had actually been reversed growth for the past ten years. So all those things jumped. IP jumped a little bit. Data remained high. So, you know, like remarkably resilient. You invoked
1: concentration a bit implicitly when you talked about Europe being dependent on Russia for 50% of its energy, for example. But say a bit more about what concentration means in this context and how it affects the dynamics of the way that we are
2: connected globally. So from the, from the global perspective, there's some products that really, truly originate in only a few places in the world, and all of us across the globe are dependent on those few places for our supply. Think about semiconductors. Think about iron ore, quite concentrated. Cobalt, concentrated in the, in the DRC. Second type of concentration is concentration viewed from the standpoint of an individual country, and you talked about Europe and, and gas dependency, take Germany, who were getting it only from a very concentrated set of of sources. So these are places where, for a variety of reasons, countries have built up dependencies on just a small number of countries. Now, why has this happened, right? Why are we in this position? Cost is one reason. People make, for the most part, they've made decisions based on economic factors. Another sort of reason is just regional preference. So not all goods are created equal, even if they fall in the same category. Third kind of reason is preferential trade agreements between different countries or or other forms of tariff or tax that shape the way that flows occur. We're in a world in which all of a sudden people are realizing that they have to contemplate the consequences associated with concentration not really of suppliers, but concentration in the country of origin from which they're buying stuff.
1: It sounds like concentration also increases efficiency in some cases where those disruptions don't occur. So is concentration always a bad thing? And if we rethink concentration, can we expect to see some loss of efficiency in the interim?
2: No, it's not always a bad thing. There are a lot of considerations that we need to make that involve costs, yes, involve geopolitical relationships involve the role that various different countries want to play themselves, how they're thinking about development, how they're thinking about their workforces. And all those things have to be part of the same mix. You know, if you imagine even three or four different countries, each has three trading partners, and they're largely different trading partners, in order for us to all, you know, us five countries to swap off who's supplied by whom, that's a huge problem of coordination. So geopolitical
1: risks have obviously trained a kind of policy spotlight on reshaping or rethinking, reimagining these global value chains, whether for security reasons or to strengthen resilience more generally, accepting that the world remains interdependent. How do we see trade flows continuing to evolve in coming years?
2: So broadly speaking, there are these four categories of potential evolution. Uh, semiconductors are the ones that are most prominent, probably in the in the uh, public discussion. They're also one which historically has moved most in the past, call it ten years, where there's been a sort of twenty one percent shift in share globally. Pharmaceuticals are another example. Mining of some minerals, particularly ones that are that are critical, are another example, and that will be part of what shifts the way that flows uh, crisscross the globe for such things. Second category, textiles and apparels. Not so sensitive in a uh, geopolitical sense, if you will, as some of the things that I was talking about before, but that's one where you actually do have new hub creation right now. I mean, anticipate you do have new hubs arising. Consumer electronics, other forms of electric equipment that aren't uh, particularly sensitive, uh, probably fall in that category too. Third category, Think IT services or even financial intermediation or professional services. And that will reconfigure the ways in which services flow. And then finally and fourth, there's the stuff that's just going to be steady. So food and beverages, paper and printing. There's no real particular reason to expect that there, there are strong forcing mechanisms That will change the way that those things are uh, flowing across the world right now, and they're things that actually have remained relatively steady for the past 10, and in many instances, even more years than that.
1: Do we have a view on whether the evolving state of global flows is helping or hindering the net zero transition?
2: The way I'd put it is there is no way we move quickly towards a net zero transition without global flows there's certainly things about global flows that are tricky from a net zero perspective, right? It costs carbon, if you will, to ship things or to move things a long way. But, you know, in order for net zero to be attainable, we need to make sure that technologies, uh, so energy generating technologies and fuels are able to flow across the world. And there's a lot of stuff. So that's a the energy generating technologies is both the minerals that underpin construction of those technologies, as well as the actual manufacture. So in the first category, think nickel and lithium. In the second category, think the actual manufacture of solar panels. And for uh, the minerals themselves, like we were talking about earlier, they're sources of origin and areas where they're processed today is in not all countries in the world. And so people are going to have to move them from one place to another. In short, maybe you have a world where you get broader diversification of such things, but on average, the timeline um, is varies widely, but the timeline from discovering a mineral to actually being able to produce it at scale is well in excess of 16 years. So if we want to move fast, we don't have the, uh, the luxury to not move things across the world. Similarly for manufacturing, meet cost curves for manufacturing. Manufacturing at scale and in locations where you have at least some established presence is going to be important. Final element that's that's really crucial with respect net zero is uh, cross-border capital flows. So, Really important that flows from, for the most part, developing countries are able to finance shifts in the way that energy is produced and consumed across the world, including in developing countries, which may well both have to spend more, at least as a ratio of GDP, and have less ability to spend given other forms of development imperative.
1: What's the role of major multinational companies as we look ahead toward reimagining the future of our global connectedness?
2: The first thing that one needs to recognize is that major multinational corporations play a outsized role in global flows as they are today. Multinationals are responsible for about 30% of trade. They're responsible, though, if you look in terms just of exports, 60%. And exports of knowledge-intensive goods, about 82%. So they disproportionately drive flows. And as I say, especially the ones associated with knowledge. And therefore, they're going to be necessarily in the center of managing for their own resilience, but also for, in a collective sense, for the resilience of the world.
1: This goes back to where we started the media focus on what some see as globalization's imminent demise. So accepting that global ties continue to bind and to connect us across the world, it's also natural for folks to have pretty strong reactions to these intense and ongoing global disruptions that we've experienced in recent years. How would you sum up the way we think about the future of globalization at a high level?
2: The world we live in right now is highly dependent on flows. Now, will those reconfigure and shift? Yeah, absolutely. They have in the past. They will in the future. Do we
1: see anything in the research to indicate that the world is actually moving toward decoupling, which is also very much part of the media narrative?
2: If you look along regional lines, individual regions can't be independent. And if you just start to play with what sorts of of decoupling of regions would be possible, you see very quickly that it's not something you can do. Now, is it possible that you would get groups of countries that become more strongly interconnected among them and less strongly connected with others? Absolutely, it's possible to move in that direction. The question becomes, is there an actual decoupling or do you just have a shift in degree you know, as with most most things in the world, they actually tend towards the shift in degree rather than a, an abrupt or sharp true change or decouple. Does greater regionalization actually improve resilience? To some degree, you can say, look, well, if I'm self-sufficient, I'm more resilient. On the other hand, all of a sudden you depend on yourself for everything. And that's a point of vulnerability just in the same way that getting it only from one other person would be a problem. So There are a whole host of reasons why some degree of regionalization might help. You've got things more close to you, but dependency just on a few set of people, whether or not they're in your region, means you've got dependency on just a few points of potential weaknesses rather than a broad web, which in general is a more sort of resilient uh, and robust structure.
1: Thanks so much, Olivia. That was such an interesting discussion. Real pleasure, Lucia. Thank you.
3: One resilient company is AB InBev. Here to talk about how it's thriving in the face of worldwide disruption is its CFO, Fernando Tenenbaum, here in conversation with Lucia.
1: On the brink of a new year, 2023, we've got high inflation. We've got high interest rates driving up the cost of capital. We've got geopolitical turbulence unexpectedly upending supply chains sending energy prices spiking it's genuinely an uncertain moment a volatile moment let's start there tell us how are you faring in the current context
0: we are fortunate enough to be in a category that is very resilient because despite the twists and turns that we see in different parts of the world beer sales they've been quite strong having said that Inflation, probably what you thought was inflation in the beginning of the year in the U.S., inflation turned out to be much higher. Then you need to make sure your operations are in sync with what's happening in the market, seeing what is the state of the consumer and making sure that it's adjusting the operations accordingly. Other parts of the world, if you think about uh, more of the emerging market, Latin America, Africa, then inflation is not a new news. Of course, you have different levels of inflation, but inflation has been has been a part of these economies. Uh, for a very long time, the consumers are more used to, the companies are more used to, and that's probably a, a more straightforward discussion.
1: Well, you've spent, in fact, much of your career in Latin America, where, as you said, inflation has historically been much higher, more volatile than, say, in the U.S. or in Western Europe. Walk us through some of the lessons that we could learn from here in the U.S., for example.
0: You need to make sure you are you are looking at your customer and you need to make sure that you're always keeping up with inflation Uh, you should avoid uh, lagging too much behind and you should avoid overpricing compared to inflation because at the end of the day what is important is the health of the consumer and if you do too little or you do too much you start uh, disturbing that you should avoid it but if you get it right probably is a good thing for your business you can manage your business you can make sure that you navigate the rising cost environment while ensuring that the consumer is in a good place, your product is in a good place, and the category is a health one. So it's a balancing act.
1: AB InBev has a, a very diverse portfolio of brands as well. Volumes are good, our customers trading up and down based on you know, premiumization versus mass market brands.
0: Premiumization continues to be a trend and consumers continue to trade up to premiumization. More often than not, over the course of this year, I got the question whether consumers were trading down or not. We see no evidence of trading down, and that is true for the US, that is true for Africa, that is true for Latin America, uh, which is quite unique. I don't know if uh, the future is going to be different, the world is changing so fast these days. But so far until today, I can tell you that there is no evidence of trading down. Mm. Only trading up, and premium continues to be the, the segment that is growing. And if you ask me 10 years from now, Primo is going to be even bigger than it is today.
1: That's so interesting. Let's talk a little bit about uncertainty. The economy could play out in so many different ways at this point, so many mixed signals. How do you manage for that?
0: Let's look, for example, at our debt portfolio. Mm -hmm. Now is a moment that uh, interest rates are going up, inflation is going up, and rise of borrowing is going up. It tends to be bad news. But for us, actually, it's quite the opposite because we actually don't have any debt maturing on the next uh, three years. We prepared for that when we see the world going to, to a very different place in the beginning of 2020. We ended up uh, raising some debt, long-term debt, repaying our short-term debt. And now we are left with that portfolio that we have an average maturity of 16 years, no meaningful amount of debt maturing on the next three years, and all no fixed rate. And since you don't need to refinance, you are actually buying back your debt, rising interest rates is actually a good thing because you can actually buy debt cheaper than it was the cost to issue.
1: So you became CFO at AB InBev just after the pandemic broke out in April, 2020, if I'm not mistaken. Uncertainty was at its peak. Talk to us about how you navigated that period,
0: I remember the first thing that we needed to do in 2020 said let's make sure we pump up the cash position let's make sure we have uh, as much cash available not that we needed but I felt that that this would give a lot of peace of mind to the operations so the first thing we did we start borrowing a lot of money we start taking care of our people we need to make sure that our people are safe because it was a health crisis, so that's kind of a priority number one. Once we make sure that the people are safe, our operations were safe, then let's see what opportunities we have. And then when we start fast forward, I remember then we look at May. May we start seeing already volumes very similar to the previous year. Uh, we start seeing a lot of markets doing, doing really well in terms of volume. And at that moment, then we, we had a lot of cash, we start buying back some debt. Uh, especially the near-term debt to create even more of optionality for the future who knows how the future is going to look like we really accelerated our digital transformation that was a unique uh, moment because uh, digital is a much better way for you to reach uh, our customers in a moment that everybody was afraid afraid to meet uh, in face Mm -hmm. and we were able to really accelerate the digital transformation uh, I can tell you that uh, the, at the end of the day, in hindsight, the company ended up in a much better place today than it was three years ago, both in terms of portfolio, digital transformation, uh, even on a financial side, kind of a very strong position today. And this is because we were actually acting very quickly, and we are creating a lot of optionality for us uh, during the, the first few months of the pandemic.
1: Fascinating. Any mistakes to avoid that you, would, that you either saw yourself or saw among others that you would think others could benefit from?
0: I felt that uh, looking back, interestingly enough, I wouldn't have done anything massively different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If I knew the outcome, I would do things differently. But without knowing the outcome, I felt that the way we manage and the amount of optionality that we create for ourselves was a very good place to be.
1: Brewing is obviously such an agriculturally dependent business. And agriculture has been significantly disrupted and come under stress, obviously, because of the war in Ukraine, as you alluded to earlier, and because of additional climate-related risk. I'm wondering, as CFO, how do you think about sustainability in terms of longer-term value creation?
0: Sustainability is key to our business and we've been doing sustainability even before we knew what was sustainability. Because if you look at our business, we are an industry that uh, it's uh, a lot of agricultural products. beer is natural. Mm-hmm. Uh, beer is local because a lot of local sourcing and we say beer is inclusive because if you look around, we have two billion consumers, everybody drinks beer. Mm-hmm. and I feel the sustainability cuts across the whole of our business from the sourcing, a lot of local suppliers, a lot of local farmers. We have 20,000 local farmers, all the way to the brewing. Our process is all a natural process. So the more efficient we are there, the more sustainable we are, and actually the more profitable we are. So that's where sustainability goes hand in hand. Local operations, it's not that we have kind of a breweries in one place and we ship there. In pretty much all of them, we have local breweries. And then we sell to the local community. And most of our customers, They are very small entrepreneurs. So the more we can help them, the more they can run their business better.
1: I'm also interested in packaging. Is packaging also part of the sustainability approach?
0: It is, definitely is. If you think about beer, uh, we have returnable glass bottles. That's very efficient, very sustainable. And from an economic standpoint, probably that's the the most profitable packaging that you have. Mm -hmm. And it is actually the most affordable to your consumers. So it's good for us, good for the environment, and good for the consumers.
1: Interesting. You alluded to beer being inclusive in part because most of us drink it. How else do you approach inclusion at AB InBev?
0: We have 2 billion consumers. The consumers that we have, they are very different from each other. Mm. We need to make sure that as a company, we reflect somewhat the consumers that we have. So whenever we look at uh, our our colleagues, we need to make sure that they are a reflection of the society where we operate and we operate in very different societies. So inclusion is very important for us because uh, we feel that uh, working in that direction we'll have a better team, a diverse team, an inclusive team is going to be a better team. Uh, there is also inclusion about making sure that uh, 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 some suppliers, for example, if you think about the suppliers in Africa, some very poor suppliers, they manage to get access to technology, they manage to we can track whether they are receiving the funds that we are paying, we can track where the, the agricultural commodities are being sourced. So how we financially empower them is also a very good, a very important portion of our sustainability strategy.
1: Looking ahead, how else are you thinking about? innovation and investment in technology in order to enable growth at AB InBev?
0: Innovation is a a key component of beer, and there are two sides of that. One is innovation in terms of products, bringing new products, innovation with packaging. If you look into Mexico, we have different pack sizes for different consumption occasions, for different types of consumer needs, so we're looking to that. And then you have also the technology innovation. If you look at our B2B platform, We started piloting it in 2019, and three, four years later, we have uh, around $30 billion of uh, GMV in our e-commerce platform. We have more than 19 countries. And then with that, you can definitely improve your customer because you can have the optimal portfolio uh, that they can use at their point of sale. You can definitely interact more with them before our B2B platform. Use it to spend seven minutes a week interacting with our customers. Today, with the B2B platform, we are interacting with them 30 minutes per week. Uh, you can increase the number of points of sales that we had. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna give one country, for example, in Brazil used to have 700,000 customers, now we have more than a million customers. It's not that they were not buying from us, probably they were buying our products from someone else, from a distributor, now we can reach directly to them, now that we have the, the B2B system in place. And the moment that you have this connection with your customer, then you can do a lot of other things, like marketplace. We already have, uh, from 3rd party products, analyze a GMV of $850 million. And this kind of uh, was zero four years ago, and continues to grow and continues to deliver a lot of value for our customers and for ourselves.
1: If you could give one piece of advice to a brand new CFO of a large multinational corporation, what would it be in this market?
0: Make sure that you have different scenarios. The world uh, probably is, is, is is moving very fast. And even if you look at the beginning of the year, you expect the world to unfold in a certain way. It's going to be in a different way. But if you have the optionality, if you are agile in making decisions, you have a very engaged team, Then, regardless of the twists and turns, you are able to meet the moment, and you are definitely able to 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 deliver on your on your objectives.
1: Very helpful. I lied. I'm going to ask you one more. How do you see for these new CFOs the relationship between sustainability and inclusivity and growth? Do you see those in tension?
0: There is this myth that uh, you are either sustainable or profitable. Mm -hmm. At least uh, at ABI we feel they go hand in hand. The more sustainable you are, the more profitable you are Mm -hmm. and the more value created to your different stakeholders.
1: Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahilly, And
3: I'm Roberta Fassaro.
1: Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly.
3: And check out the McKinsey Insights app, where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily.
1: And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.